And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Good morning. In the 1800s, about the mid-1800s, is 1843, uh, priest commissioned a poet named Placide Capot to write a poem for him. He wanted him to look at Luke chapter 2 in the birth of Christ and write a poem. He did. He wrote it. And what's interesting about Placide is he was not even a Christian. Uh, he was not a follower of Jesus. He actually was had a reputation for very actively not being a follower of Jesus. Um, and he liked what he wrote so much. He loved the poem he wrote that he had another friend of his uh, put it to music. It was put to music and it became what we know as O Holy Night. Um, o Holy Night is probably one of the most famous Christmas songs. Uh, f- about 50 years later, just after the 1900s, 1906, Reginald Fen... Uh, a 33-year-old university professor did something for the very first time. He went in his garage and he created this makeshift generator uh, that broadcasted over the AM airwaves. Over the very first time that anything went over the airwaves, he read Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus' birth, starting in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, and we're very familiar with the story. And after reading Luke chapter 2, he played O Holy Night on his violin, the very first thing to ever go over airwaves. We're in a series that we're starting today called The Songs of Christmas, and looking at where they came from, what they mean, where they pulled those ideas from in Scripture. And today, as we look at our first one, O Holy Night, Uh, I want us to focus in on the lines where it says, A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. That whole part actually says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I love that. The soul feels the worth of, of Christ entering in. It says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Let's pray. God, we turn to you this morning asking you to speak to us through your word, through your character and nature, by your spirit. Would you minister to each and every one of us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Originally, when we started planning this series, this was always the song we were going to sing this week and always what we were going to focus on. Abigail was originally going to preach this Sunday uh, on the schedule, but as some of you are aware, one of our very good friends went to be with the Lord this week. Um, It's been a very difficult week, and this wasn't just any friend. It was truly one of our best friends, one of Abigail's best friends. We've known them for over a decade. We've done over seven years of ministry with them, uh, spending so many hours together uh, in the church and just ministering to people, living life together, eating so many tacos. Um, But our friend Nancy went home to be with the Lord, and it was quick. It was in the matter of two weeks that everything developed, and, um, you know, we find ourselves in this moment of pain and suffering and experiencing the brokenness of the world and how things are not as they should be. I almost asked a friend to preach for me who had offered, uh, another pastor, and as I kind of paused and prayed, and I just felt encouraged to still share today. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.8 
says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. This is Paul talking about his time with the Philippian church and how, yes, he's a pastor and an apostle and he shared the gospel and he preached, but he did more than that. He shared his life with them. And I think discipleship is both preaching and sharing. It's that living life in front of each other. So today's message is a little bit different. I don't just have one text that we're going to work through and pull points from. I have basically uh, collected things from my journal in the last couple of days and organized them into a message. Um, I think it's very fitting during the season of Advent. The Advent season is, you know, the weeks leading up to Easter, the four weeks that lead up to Easter. And Advent is a word that means coming, Christ's coming. Um, it's a time traditionally in the church where we look back at his first coming, the incarnation, the birth of our Savior, and that reminds us that we're still in a season of waiting, waiting for his return again, that we're living in the in-between. Living in the in-between is still a place that's filled with pain and suffering. That as much as there is the thrill of hope and the joy and truth of salvation and the birth of our Savior, it's still a broken, fallen world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has some great sermons on Advent, some good devotionals, and he says, it's possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. For these, it is enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One himself comes down to us, God in the child in the manger. I want to spend this morning just talking about that now but not yet. That in between the first coming of Christ and that second coming of Christ, that hope theme that comes with Advent, the idea of pain and suffering, but Jesus coming and entering into the middle of it. Like I said, it's, it's going to just be a little all over the place. Um, it's been a hard week and I'll probably repeat myself and might cry. I've been crying all morning. Um, but I basically took thoughts from my journal and wanted to share those with you because I thought that would just be a helpful way to pastor you. Because whether you are in pain right now um, or you're not, we all walk through pain. You know, John sixteen thirty three says that in the world we will have trouble. That's not one of our favorite promises. That's not one that we have written down and that we are so excited to claim, God, thank you. I claim that promise. We're not like, hey, Mike, come up here and sing yes and amen. All your promises are yes and amen. But it is true. In this world, you will have trouble. Some of us are walking through it right now and some of us are not. But I think that by sharing raw and vulnerably, I can hopefully help some of us. So the first thing I want us to know is that God enters our pain. He comes into it. Sometimes we just want him to solve it. We want him to take it away. But it's actually what he enters into. That is what Advent is all about. It's about God sending his own son, Jesus, into the broken world. After 400 years of silence and waiting from the Jewish people, the incarnation happens. Jesus, the birth of our Savior, light in the darkness, it reminds us that we're not alone in our pain. 
when we think about the incarnation, when we think about Jesus coming. Because pain can feel so isolating. It can feel like you're alone. But when we reflect on the, the truth of the gospel and the fact that Jesus has come, it reminds us you aren't alone in your pain. I wrote this down in my journal yesterday. I said, he doesn't always come as I expect him to, but he always comes. There's another theologian who talks about the three comings of Christ. Typically, when we think about the comings of Christ, it's the two things, right? It's the advent, the incarnation, Jesus putting on flesh, God with man to dwell, Emmanuel, God with us, and then the future coming of Christ. But the third coming is actually the one that's in between the two. It's when he regularly shows up to us personally. And just like in the manger, it's unexpected. Who thought the Savior of the world would be born in a manger? Who thought there would be no room for him at the inn? Who thought they'd be refugees that have to run and hide in Egypt? I mean, we know these things because of prophecy, but if we just think about them in the natural, it's so unexpected. It's not what they were hoping for either. They thought he was going to come and overthrow the political government, and he thought all of these things were going to be part of what it means for the Messiah to come. And the truth is that he doesn't always come as we expect him to, but he always comes. And that even in our pain, even in our suffering, he's with us. He's not alone. Advent reminds us that God shows up in mysterious ways. Henry Nouwen says, The Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. I love that. And I think part of leaning into Advent is learning to look for it. Learning to look for where he is showing up. Learning to look for the light. Jesus entering the world is described as light. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 5, The light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's an imagery of what we're singing in O Holy Night, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. The weariness of the world, the darkness of the world. Jesus enters right into the middle of it. The light shines in the darkness. I think about Christmas and all that comes with it, the lights on the trees, on the houses, the candles in the windows. In the windows. It reminds me of the star that led them to Jesus' birth and the heavenly host and the magnificent shining that goes with that and how Jesus' birth is light in a dark place. And that my job is to look for where he's showing up and lighting the way. I was reflecting on how darkness is just the absence of light and we know that, we've all learned that. But... Just in light of grief, thinking about how dark things can feel and asking Jesus just to shine his light on it. I started thinking, as I regularly do when it comes to theology, about Lion King. <laughs> and they're holding up Simba, and then just a few scenes later, he's explaining the kingdom to him. And he's explaining, our kingdom is everything the light touches. Everything the light touches. That's what the kingdom of God is. 
It's light spreading out. And when we celebrate Christmas and the coming of our Savior, it's that light entering the world. But reflecting on that and thinking about how he, before he ascends to heaven, gives this famous sermon on the mountain and then says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. How the kingdom of God is all about the people of God showing the light that has already come, shining it in dark places, thinking about the hope he offers in his coming the first time, how we have a right relationship with him now. The incarnation, the first coming of Christ, is all about how we now have a right relationship with God through him. That he was born so that he could live and pay the price that we deserve, die on the cross and raise again on the third day. So that first coming of Christ reminds us, I can have right relationship with God. The second coming of Christ is when all things will be made right. The hard part is living in the middle. When I have right relationship with God and I get glimpses of the future, I mean, that's what we're praying for, right? We're praying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Acknowledging that it's not always, but praying that we would see glimpses of it until one day we fully see it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Reminding me again, I'm not alone. Remembering you're not alone is helpful in grief. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God's with us in our suffering. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Symbolizing his protection and direction. His fighting away evil and guiding us where we should go. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 28, he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So as I grieve and reflect on Advent, I remember I'm not alone. But I also remember it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. I'm not okay. I'm sad. I'm heartbroken. One of my best friends, his wife is in heaven. It's not supposed to be that way. And I think sometimes we over-spiritualize it. It is very spiritual. The eternity, all those things are are real and they are a comfort and we grieve not as those without hope. We grieve with hope. But I think sometimes we try to cover up our pain with spiritual truth. And I want us to hold on to the spiritual truth and not ignore the pain. I think it's really important. There's a book that I recommend uh, for everybody, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. He actually says, you can only be so spiritually mature while remaining or emotionally immature. That your emotional life will have an effect on your spiritual life. He actually has a list of 10 ways to evaluate where your emotional maturity is in relation to your spiritual maturity. It's fun to look at. We won't look at it today, but maybe in the future. I encourage you to read the book. 
I think sometimes as Christians, we're tempted to repress our emotions, to ignore them, to sweep them under the rug, to want to just say, it's going to be okay. And it will be okay. We'll be reunited with Nancy in heaven someday. But it still hurts. It's still painful. I actually wrote this. I wrote, um, some people view pain as immaturity when you stay in pain. Um, But it's actually immaturity to pretend you're not in pain. Jesus, in Matthew 26, models this for us. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And this is moments before the cross. Many of us are familiar with this story. These are him. This is his time after Passover, knowing what lies before him. He took a few with him. He sat there and he said, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus was troubled. He's full of sorrow. It's not spiritually immature to feel those things. It's okay. In fact, in verse 38, he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is Jesus speaking. He's acknowledging his own pain to the disciples. He's saying, I am full of sorrow to the point where I can barely stand it. I don't think we need to pretend our pain doesn't exist and call it spiritual maturity. I don't think we need to run past it or avoid it. I think it's okay to acknowledge. Going a little farther, verse 39, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I was reflecting on this for a while yesterday, thinking about Jesus being the perfect picture of holiness and maturity, the example that we are to follow, and thinking about how is he in his moment of sorrow, in his moment of pain. I noticed that he quickly gave his feelings to God. He was honest before God. He prayed. He told God how he felt. He didn't just tell God either. He told Peter, James, and John. He didn't tell all the disciples. They knew to different extents. I think if we're going to deal with grief properly, and this is helpful for all of us in some season, you need to be honest with God how you feel, and you need a few close people you can really vulnerably share with. You can tell everybody you're sad, but there's different levels, right? Not everybody's going to respond appropriately. They're not all in the same place as you. And Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John, and he goes, Guys, I am crushed. I am sorrowful to the point of death. I think we need to give our feelings to God, and we need to give our feelings to a few others. God's not afraid of honesty. He also gave his desires to God. He said, God, if there is any other way, If there's something that can change how I feel, if there's something you can do, please do it. He gave his feelings to God. He gave his feelings to others. He gave his desires to God. He trusted him. He continued trusting him. 
Because that prayer saying, God, this is my desire, turned into surrender. But not my will, but yours be done. I think it's important to acknowledge it's okay to not be okay and still trust God. I think that's where we should be. I think we need to trust him in the middle of it. I think we don't have to rush ourselves out of pain. In fact, I want to encourage you not to if you're in pain. Whether you're in pain now or you're holding on to this and re-watching it or listening to the podcast later in a season of grief, don't rush the pain. We, we want to and we have different ways of doing it. Some of us just try to detach. We try to disassociate or, or hold things loosely because then they won't bother us. Because there's lots of type of pain. You know, I'm filtering it all through the grief and loss of a, of a friend this week, but there's loneliness, there's fear, there's isolation, there's broken relationships, there's all sorts of pain. And we try to detach from it. Or some of us try to fake it. We convince ourselves, we fake it to ourselves, not just others. We tell ourselves, it's okay, I shouldn't feel this way. God is still good. Yes, God is absolutely good, but you can still feel that way. Or we try to avoid it by escaping. We turn to something else, some sort of pleasure or escape or feeling or high of some type, food or drugs or alcohol or distraction and fun. We try to mask the pain. We're naturally pain-avoidant people. But I want to encourage us not to avoid the pain. When we avoid the pain, we shortcut the healing process. When we don't acknowledge how we feel and we shut off part of our heart, we can't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've totally closed ourselves off to part of it. Paul talks about ministering to others through the ministry you've received from God. If you don't receive healing and comfort from God, you don't have anything to offer anyone else either. You know, Matthew 5 verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God wants to provide supernatural comfort to our pain. We have to let him, though. We have to be willing to sit in it. We can't avoid it or run from it or pretend it's not there. We have to say, God, I need you to come into the middle of my pain just as you did in Advent, and just as you will one day, I need it personally in this moment. I need light in the darkness. I need you to enter in and bring healing. Don't rush yourself out of the pain, and don't force others to rush out of the pain. Allow them to be where they need to be. Offer comfort and love and support. I think sometimes we rush so fast as a culture. We're not good at grief in America. Other cultures maybe do it better. I mean, the Jewish tradition is that there is a time of mourning before the funeral. And then once the funeral happens, there's a seven-day dedicated period of mourning. And then after that, for close family and friends, there's another 30 days, including the seven. And then for immediate family, it's a whole year. For that first year, they pray a prayer of mourning every day. When we allow ourselves to mourn and feel pain, we also open ourselves up to the coming of Christ in our own life, the comfort that he offers. I also 
this was less in my journal and more I just wanted to encourage people. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Jesus, again, being our model on the cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of us are so afraid to be honest with God and honest about our pain and honest about our frustrations or asking our questions, but he already knows. You can be honest. Jesus asked why. I was reflecting on this this week too and thinking about how Jesus is the son of God, knowing actually the purpose of why he's on the cross, but yet still in his pain saying, God, why? There wasn't a voice or answer from heaven in that moment. In fact, the next thing that happens is he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Similarly to in the garden, Jesus goes from crying out and questioning or asking for help to saying, I still trust you. In the middle of my pain, in the middle of my suffering. So it's okay to ask questions. I kind of already touched on this, but my next point was I shouldn't avoid my pain. You know, when we avoid it, it doesn't go away. You just postpone it. You might not even realize you're postponing it, but it will come out in a weird way. It'll come out in the way you treat somebody. It'll come out in anger. It'll come out in something. So it's much better just to wait on the Lord and let him bring comfort to our pain. Don't shortcut your pain. I will wait on the Lord. In the middle of it, I still have hope. I still have hope. You know, the Bible talks about grieving with hope. That we aren't like people who grieve without hope. That we grieve with hope, knowing that this isn't all there is. That is the beauty of Advent. Knowing that he's already come to make things right between us and him. And he'll come again and make all things right. He'll make them as they should be. It's a time where we reflect on that. And he comes near to us personally. That we're living in the tension of now, but not yet. A messy and broken world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That God offers blessing. He offers comfort. He offers nearness. He offers provision and protection. and All of these things to do with our earthly life. But if all we have to hope for in Christ is what he can do for us now, we should be pitied. That's not why we do what we do. That's not why we believe in the risen Savior. We believe in him because he is true and good, and we have the promise of eternity when he will make all things right. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the difference between hoping for and hoping in. Hoping for something is hoping for a specific outcome. It's could be more than wishful thinking. You know, biblical hope is rooted in the nature of God, but it's still having hope for something. You know, amidst this week and the ongoing reports and calls and text messages of things continuing to progress and get worse, we didn't stop having faith and praying in hope that God would still do what only he can do. But our hope wasn't in that. We had hope for it, but our hope wasn't in it. 
Our hope was in Christ. Our hope is still in Christ. The problem is, is when we put our faith and hope in just the outcome or the circumstances, our world can get rocked in a completely different way. Our faith will be shattered because what our faith was in didn't happen. And you can have trust in Christ in the middle of disappointment. You can hold on to the truth that he is good. He is good. I'm utterly convinced of it. I know that he cares for me. I know that he loves me. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He's already displayed an incredible amount of love by dying on the cross, by entering the world, by coming in Advent and celebrating. The reason we celebrate Christmas is that he's come out of love. That is what my hope is in. My hope is in Christ. But we still can hope for things and have faith for things. Just don't put your hope in the wrong thing. Because that's when you find yourself in seasons of questioning everything. You find yourself in a season of questioning your faith and who God is. And like I said before, it's okay to ask questions, but we need a firm foundation. Hebrews talks about hope being an anchor for our soul. That anchor needs to be tied to something secure, the nature and character of God. Romans 5 talks about a hope that doesn't disappoint. Or the way the NIV puts it, a hope that does not put us to shame. This is Romans 5.5. 5. And, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That there is a hope that won't disappoint us. And it is the gospel. It is the fact that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again, gives us his spirit, and promises us the future of eternity with him. One thing I wrote down yesterday is that prayer is the voice of hope. That it can start to feel like, where is my hope? And how do I hold on to it? And what does it look like right now? And I think as long as you keep praying, you keep giving a voice to hope. It's when you stop going to God with those things that I start to worry about you. Hope requires waiting. Hope requires waiting. In fact, that is traditionally what you spend one whole weekend in Advent talking about, the waiting. You reflect on the people waiting for the coming of the Messiah and you remember how we're still waiting for his return. Bonhoeffer some of you are familiar with him. He was a pastor, a theologian, and he had plans to stop Hitler and was put in prison, lived a radical life of the gospel. And while he was in prison, he would write letters to his wife, often talking about Christmas. We have a whole Advent book that has some of the letters he wrote to her during the Christmas season. And then one thing he says is that Advent is like a prison. It's like a cell. And I kind of hate that. <laughs> but it is true. It's the idea of you're held captive in your waiting. And the door only opens from the outside. That you can't control. 
You know, in, in our culture and tradition, like Advent, there's a countdown. We have a book we read with the kids that counts down to Christmas and it helps build anticipation and remind us of the season. We made paper chains with the kids and they're ripping one off every day and they're counting down, counting down. But true Advent waiting on the coming of Christ is always counting up. You don't know when it's going to happen. It was 400 years of not hearing from God and what he was going to do before Christ came in the flesh. And it's been a couple thousand years where we're still praying, God, come again. We're waiting for your return. Advent reminds us that waiting is part of the Christian life and that hope requires waiting. We're in that season of now but not yet where we have right relationship with God and our world is still broken. Things are not as they should be and we get glimpses of heaven and glimpses of what he wants here on earth, but we're left with this longing inside of us. Revelation 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Some of you know that word, Maranatha. Nancy loved to say that. Our friend who were grieving, she would always say, Come, Lord Jesus. She was so ready for heaven. Advent reminds us that hope requires waiting, that we're in the in-between. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So as we sing, O Holy Night, and we get to that line that talks about a weary world rejoicing, that thrill of hope, we remember that we are in a weary world. God offers hope. He enters into our pain. He makes us right with him. And that we have hope that this isn't all there is. That we will one day be reunited with the ones we love who know him. That one day every tear will be wiped away and things will be made new. And God will restore all things to as they should be. We have a hope for a future. Romans 5 really anchors us in a lot of ways with hope. The beginning of the chapter talks about how we have peace with God. That gives me hope. I have peace with God. Between God and I, things are good because of what Jesus has done. I have hope because I know my past is dealt with. I have hope because I know my future is secure. I have hope because I know he is good and faithful. We celebrate the three comings when we think about Advent. He came because he loves us. He's coming again to make all things right. And in the middle, he comes and meets us where we are. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to suffer. We can still trust that he's good. We can be honest with him and say, God, this is how I feel. Enter into my pain. Comfort me with the comfort that only you offer. I won't avoid it. I won't run from it. I'm not going to escape it. I'm not going to put it off. I'm going to just let you minister to me. And in that place, we find scriptures like Psalm 34 to be true, that God is near to the brokenhearted. God, we turn to you. We ask that you would speak to us, 
God, minister to each one of us who's hurting right now for various reasons, God. The holidays bring up so many things for so many people. Lord, those who are fearful right now, Lord, those who are lonely, stressed about finances, God, those who find themselves in a place of darkness, God, would you shine your light? God, I pray that people would give themselves permission to feel pain, that they wouldn't avoid it, that they would, like Jesus, admit their pain, but not just stay there, God, that they would invite you into it. God, that you would meet them right where they're at. I thank you that you are good, you are trustworthy, that you continue to meet me in my pain. God, I pray that we would receive the hope that you offer in the first coming of Christ and look forward to the hope of his return. God, would you help us to live with a perspective that is eternal and bigger than our immediate moment? We love you. God, we pray for Damien and Levi, Jade, and Jude. We pray that you'd be with them and comfort them in their pain. God, would you make yourself known to them in a new and unique way? God, would you surround them with your presence? Would they remember it's okay to not be okay? Would they receive your comfort and patiently wait in hope? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com. We hope you have a great week.